Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from Platte Woods United Methodist Church. We are a community seeking to lead people to follow Jesus. If you would like information on weekly service times or ways to connect, please visit platwoodschurch.org. We're beginning a new series today, and I love that setup for it, Rhythms. Our lives are filled with them. Rhythms of rising, sleeping, eating, making, coming, going, working, playing. Some of these rhythms sort of just happen. They choose us, but others, we have the power to choose. And since the rhythms of our lives tell a bit of a story about what's important to us, I thought it would be good to spend some time being intentional about what song it is that we want our lives to play. Now, I'm a musician, so when I think about rhythm, my mind goes first to music. The rhythm, the pulse, is what holds everything else together. Without a steady beat underneath laying the foundation, the melody would have nothing to follow. The harmonies would have no place to stick. Every musician might follow her own opinion about what the tempo should be and the song would fall apart. No one would be able to dance. The rhythm is the glue. For those of you band nerds out there, this is perhaps most visibly illustrated with a marching band analogy. If you've ever marched, you know what I mean. If you haven't, you can imagine. I grew up in North Texas, where high school football is sort of a religion all its own. So most of my Friday nights were spent up at Cravens Field cheering on the Lamar Vikings. I was partially interested in the actual football game, but what I was really there for was halftime. That's when the band marched their show, and I loved it. Now, just to be clear, I wasn't in the marching band. No, no. If the band kids were the nerds, I was even one level less cool than that. I was in the orchestra. So I went to the football game to watch my band friends march for seven minutes at halftime. Yeah, I was a marching band groupie. If you didn't think I was cool before. (laughs) But honestly, cool is relative. I loved my high school Friday nights. I loved my friends. I had a great time and I would do it all again. So high school students, embrace your own cool. Don't let anyone else define it for you. All that to say, if you've ever watched a marching band, you see clearly what is at stake if rhythm is lost. I was always disproportionately concerned for my friends on sousaphone, the tubas that wrap around your entire body. If they get out of step or off by a single beat, like horrible things happen. Tubas pile up, instruments scatter, people get hurt. And then there's the trombone line. My own brother was numbered among them, both in high school and then later at Marching Mizzou. Trombones do this ridiculous thing they call the guillotine. It's horrible, I know, but you get the idea here. Imagine what happens when the rhythm is lost, even just for one person. 
There are those YouTube video clips out there too. They just felt a little too cringy to show here. Rhythm holds the song, the march, the dance together. Rhythm holds our lives together too. Because no one likes to get smacked in the head with a trombone, figurative or real. This week marks the beginning of a season in the church world known as Lent. Not what you might find in your pocket or your dryer vent, but Lent with an E that shares the meaning of springtime, the time when things grow. It's a period of 40 days that started this past week on what we call Ash Wednesday, and it takes us all the way to Easter. And the purpose of this season is for Christians to tend to their spiritual growth. It begins with a call to repentance, which simply means to turn back to God. And then it invites us to take stock of where we are in that relationship with God and challenges us to grow. We look to Jesus' life and ministry to guide us in a different way of living, the beat of a different drummer, if you will. In this series, I hope that it can be a time when we sink our lives once again, or maybe for the first time, to the rhythm of God's song for us. Through these next several weeks, we'll explore one rhythm each week. And I'm grateful for the work of Marjorie Thompson, whose book can be a companion for us along the way. It's called Soul Feast. And while it's certainly not necessary for you to read it or have it to follow along with this series, she does provide in-depth and practical advice for how to really do the things we'll be talking about each week. So if you're one of those people that always likes to have a good book on your nightstand at all times, or you like to read things together with a group of people, this is one for you in this season. There's no one way or right way to do this work of rhythm making, and there's nothing that's particularly difficult or profound. Instead, there are simple practices things that Christians have been doing for centuries over and over again that have drawn them closer to Jesus. They are rhythms that Jesus himself set for his life, and these are the same practices that we can use to set the rhythm of our lives too. Today we look at a first practice that Jesus demonstrates right at the very beginning of his ministry. I mentioned before that we are at the beginning of a period of 40 days in this season of Lent. That's not coincidence. It goes hand in hand with this story I'm about to read from Luke. The first thing we know about Jesus in Luke is that he's born. The second thing we know is he gets lost and left behind at the temple as a young boy. And then the third thing we know happens 20 plus years later when he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And then the fourth thing we know is this, in Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned from the Jordan River, where he'd just been baptized, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterward Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, Since you are God's Son, Command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, It's written, people won't live only by bread. 
Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil brought Jesus into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus answered, it's been said, don't test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. What we see in this passage is Jesus in a time of intense struggle, a time that lasted 40 days. His body is weak, starving, it says, from fasting. And we know when our bodies are deprived of food, weird things happen to us. I don't know about you, but I make poor choices. It's hard to think straight. I get delirious after skipping lunch. I can't imagine what it would be like after 40 days. But it's at this point, near the end of his fasting, that the temptations come. When he is at his weakest, the devil, which is also translated false accuser, comes to try and make him believe things that are not true. Jesus is tempted by the things that every human finds alluring, especially in moments of vulnerability. The devil appeals to his appetite first. Make the stone into bread. Satisfy your pain and hunger. Physical security and wellness is one of our most basic human needs. Who could blame him for saying yes to the bread? But then the devil appeals to Jesus' human desire for control, for power. Each one of us, no matter our status or role, has within us a, a longing for power. Even if that desire is benevolent and we want to use power for good, which I suspect was the real temptation for Jesus, we find it hard to say no when we have the chance to control a situation. And then the devil tempts Jesus with recognition, the chance to be known and talked about and, in modern times, famous. A spectacle of angels rescuing him in a dramatic act would be the talk of the town, the whole province most likely. It would certainly elevate his platform to preach whatever message it was he wanted to get across. All we have to do today is look at social media or media in general to recognize our deep human desire to be known, seen, recognized, exceptional. These were the weak points where the false accuser met Jesus, food, power, fame. And at every point, in spite of his deep hunger and deprivation, Jesus met the accuser with conviction and with scripture. At his very core, when every other strength was stripped away from him, what was left in Jesus' heart and mind was scripture. 
every answer he gave the accuser was a verse from Deuteronomy, which was Torah, the law. People won't live only by bread, he said. You will worship the Lord and only the Lord, and don't test the Lord your God. This was the scripture Jesus would have studied, memorized, recited, written on his heart for all of those 20-something years of his life that the Bible doesn't account for. The sacred word of God had become the foundation for his life. And in his time of extreme trial, it was where he drew his strength and resolve. What's so interesting here in this chapter of Luke is that right after his temptation in the wilderness, the very next thing that happens is Jesus walking into the synagogue, picking up the scroll of Isaiah, another scriptural text, and reading the verses that basically become the mission statement for his entire ministry. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed. So within the span of 20 verses, we see Jesus both lean on scripture to draw strength in time of adversity and claim scripture as the vision and the purpose for his life and his ministry that was just about to begin. Jesus' relationship with scripture and the way it informed and wove throughout his daily life indicates to us that it was a rhythm by which he lived. And in our modern faith and journey of following Jesus, it ought to be a rhythm by which we live, too. The Bible, as we have it in our hands today, can be a daunting book. If you've ever tried to read it cover to cover, you know that. And if you've never even cracked it open, you know that, too. It's hard to even know where to begin. Our Bible is 66 books written over hundreds of years, likely more than a thousand, in two different languages, for and by people in various parts of the world, in many different genres. That makes it complicated. But it's also the story of God for us. It's meant to inspire us, to guide us, to correct us, to compel us. It is the word God has given to us to tell us something about God's self. So when we read it, complicated as it is, there are different ways that we can go about doing so. And something I've noticed in my years of ministry about our modern reader's relationship with Scripture is that we are, in fact, products of our age, the information age, that is. We read, we've been trained and socialized to read almost everything with an eye toward information. What knowledge can I obtain from this article? What will be useful for my life from this book? What can I learn about the human experience from this survey? What is the point of this story? We read a lot of things, from Forbes to Facebook, for information. And we carry that habit right on over to the Bible, too. That's not all bad. There is fascinating and interesting and contextual and cultural information to be found in our scriptures. That's one of the great joys of my job, to approach our sacred text with an eye toward those things so that I can make some kind of sense out of them for you and then extrapolate what they might mean for our lives today. But when we only read scripture for information, we miss the greater gift and rhythm God has for us there, which is 
formation. Scripture has the power and the mystery not merely to inform us, but to form us as children of God, to shape us as siblings of Christ, as people who live in the world in the way God desires for us. To read scripture for formation looks a little different. It's less note-taking and more listening. It's less cognition and more imagination. It's asking fewer questions of the text. What Old Testament book is Jesus quoting here? What's the Greek word for devil? Was Jesus really in the wilderness for 40, 24-hour days without food? Those are all informational questions I asked of the text this week as I prepared for this sermon. But instead of asking informational questions of the text, reading scripture for formation is asking more questions of God, who is the one wanting to be revealed to us there in the first place. Scripture forms us when we enter into it with more than just our intellect. We dive into it with our imagination. We read it with our hearts. We let the scripture read us. Well, what on earth does that look like, you're asking? Really, the answers are almost limitless, but I'll offer just two words to get you started. First, I give you the word imagine. We've already done some of this in worship together today. We entered into Psalm 8 with our imaginations, hearing the words, but letting the images guide our minds and our prayer. We didn't want to explain it. We just wanted to experience it together. What happens when you close your eyes and you listen to a passage of Scripture? Do you allow yourself to enter into that scene? Do you pay attention to what you see and hear and smell and touch? If this is God's story for us, have you ever let your imagination just plant you right in the middle of that story? If not, I think this is a great time to try. Where does God meet you? And what does God show you when you enter in with a different part of your mind? The second word I'll offer is meditate. Sometimes a reading of scripture can seem like an overwhelming flood of words. They can run together and over one another and leave us feeling confused. A simple and centuries-old practice is reading a short passage of Scripture several times in a row and just listening for one word or one phrase that grabs your attention. And then over the course of five to ten minutes, just let your mind marinate and meditate only on that phrase. Begin to ask God questions about it. What would you have me hear in this word? Where is this word intersecting my life today? Is there something I need to do with it, God? These ways of entering into Scripture are ways that will form us, not just inform us. As we try to enter into the Bible with our hearts, it enters into and becomes a part of us, too, strengthening us for times of adversity and guiding us in our purpose in life. The simple challenge today, as we begin this season of Lent, is to read your Bible. 
Read it daily. Make it a rhythm in your life for these 40 days. My guess is it will probably stick longer than that. If you're already a daily Bible reader, you can be an inspiration to others. Share what you do with others who might feel overwhelmed or intimidated by Scripture. Help them to get started. But also try engaging Scripture in a way that is new and different for you. Use your imagination. For the rest of you, if you've never read the Bible or if you've fallen out of the habit, there's not a single day that you can't just get started. Begin today and make it intentional. Choose a time first that will work in your day and set an alarm on your phone. Set it on repeat until we get to Easter as a reminder every day to stop and read. And then choose a place. Make it a place that you can look forward to settling in for a few moments and a place where you're least likely to be interrupted. Parents of small children, I know this means many of you will be reading in your car, parked outside or in the garage with the doors locked, but we do whatever it takes, right? And then finally, choose a text. This might be the hardest part. Where does a person even begin? Well, to make it easy for you, we've assembled a reading plan for the Gospel of Luke. You can find this guide on our worship page on our website or on Facebook if you'll follow us there. But this guide breaks down the Gospel of Luke over the next 40 days. It's totally manageable. They're short readings. Families could even do it together. Wherever you begin and whatever you decide to do, the important thing is just to do it. Start the beat, set the rhythm, let the Bible become the steady, life-giving pulse for the song God is composing in your life. Will you pray with me? Holy wisdom, holy word, it is the words you have given to us which light our path and the story you have written for us which helps us find our own. Draw us into the Bible in these days ahead on our journey toward Easter. Open our eyes to your truth, our ears to what you are saying to us, and our hearts to the rhythm of your love. Amen.